there, Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of PharmaQuipment here. Welcome to the latest episode of the PharmaQuipment podcast series, Our Dealer Story. In this episode, just before his retirement, Dave Kanicki sat down to talk with David Meyer, CEO and Chairman of Titan Machinery. David Meyer was one of the first dealers Dave interviewed when he first joined the PharmaQuipment staff in 2005. So we thought it'd be fun if he was also his last dealer interview before retiring. Before getting involved in the farm equipment industry as a dealer, David Meyer cut his teeth working for Case right out of college in 1975. But his time with the OEM was short-lived, and he knew he'd much prefer to work on the dealer end of things. By November 1975, he was working for a dealership in North Dakota. Fast forward to present, and today Titan Machinery is one of the largest dealer organizations in the world and is a publicly traded company. Before we head over to David's story, I wanted to thank our sponsor, HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for over 30 years has provided leading edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. Thanks for making this podcast series possible. Okay, let's get things going. This is the R Dealer story of Titan Machinery. David, you were one of the first dealerships I visited when I joined Farm Equipment Magazine in 2005. And the story I wrote appeared in the October-November 2005 issue of the magazine. So you've been coaching me for about 15 years on what it takes to succeed in the farm equipment business. And I first want to say thank you for your help all these years and your willingness to answer even my crazy questions. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure, uh, Dave. I know you and Mike Lesseter, you've been the voice of the industry, the farm equipment dealer, and really appreciate all the efforts and hard work you have put into your magazines and equipment intelligence and uh, precision dealer. I mean, there's just been a lot of stuff you guys have really done a nice job on. So, Well, thank you. But like I said, the real value comes from talking to people like yourselves. So Dave, what brought you to the farm equipment business in the first place? And how did you get into this business? Well, it all started off right out of college. I took a job with GI Case Company. That was back in 1975. And to go back in 1975 was probably the first really boom year that we saw. At 73 through 75 was an unprecedented period in agriculture. There were low, low global stocks. The price of grain went up for the first time in a long, long time. Farmers were taking land out of soil bank government programs, putting in the full production. Well, a little bit like we saw in 2012, 2011, 2013, but really 1975 was the first time that this really happened. Land prices went up and farmers are just unprecedented prosperity during that period of time. So when I was graduating from college, really the two high industries were ag and oil. And I grew up in kind of the west central Minnesota, a lot of dairy farms. I bailed hay at night, had a real appreciation for not only the farm I know from my parents and their parents grew up on farms and agriculture. So it was in my blood. It was in my ancestry a little bit. So really it was a pretty easy decision. Hey, let's try this farm machinery business out. So I took a job with Case Company right out of college. And at the time, four-wheel drive was a fairly new product. And that summer, it was in June of 1975, they had this four-wheel drive caravan. And I remember they flew me out to Great Falls, Montana, and I took my class one semi-truck license in Montana, even though I was a Minnesota resident. I don't know how that worked, but I guess it worked. And put me in a semi-truck with a four-wheel drive in the back and myself and the, some of the sales promotion people, we headed out and do this. A dealership every day, you know, a different one 
every day, every other day, we'd go to the dealerships and put on a breakfast meeting or a luncheon meeting or a dinner meeting and followed up with a field day and then load up your tractor, head to the next spot. So that was my summer project. Interesting, after about, I'd say about 45 days into this, my boss and really the main presenter of the tractor that put on the meetings, he left the company. So I remember his name was Bill Shaner. He was an executive with Casey. He flew out and he says to me, he says, I, I don't know the damn thing about these things. Can you put on the meeting? And so I put on the meeting and 22 years old, but it went really well. And he said, this is your show for the rest of the summer. So I went pretty good. So started in Montana, went North South Dakota in the Minnesota and really toured a lot of dealerships. Got to meet a lot of farmers, ran this tractor on probably every piece of ground with almost every tillage piece behind it. And it really is a great introduction into the business. But I remember in September of 1975, they invited me in the Racine, Wisconsin, kind of as a, they had some of these MBA group of people. And I came from the field and the rest of them, they were on this um, MBA kind of a graduate program that they had for developing future executives with a company. And we had a week long of really intensive training at the factory in Racine. And I left away from that, liking rural America, liking agriculture. I like to hunt. And I said, boy, if I want to spend the rest of my life here, if I'm really unsuccessful within the company or on the dealership end. So I said, hey, I think I want to be a dealer. If I'm going to be in this business, I want to be a dealer because every dealership I went to, you remember 1975, everybody's making a lot of money, pretty impressive. They were all riding pretty high. And, and I said, seemed kind of exciting to me. So I went back and I remember when I was putting on a demonstration in Kintyre, North Dakota, and, and the next stop was Wapiton. And in 1975, they just had a, a lot of moisture, a great crop coming. And I said, boy, what an opportunity for a dealer here. And then I pulled into the dealership in Wapiton, and it was a, a really a small dealership right in Wapiton, North Dakota, right in the Southern Red River Valley, kind of a older couple that owned it and no sons in the business. And I said, boy, what a great opportunity. So I went back there and talked to him and said, hey, would you be interested in a young guy working in his way into a business? And we struck a deal in November of 1975. It was over Thanksgiving. I remember driving up to North Dakota in my old car and with a lot of <laughs> hopes that, hey, that was a new career. So that's how I got started. I know when I was on that four-wheel drive caravan, there was a case black man named Daryl Larson. He lived up in Minot. And we had talked about being in dealerships or maybe there's some opportunities together. Well, as soon as he heard that I was moving up with this dealership in Wapit, and he had actually looked at that a couple of years early. He thought, he said, do you need another person in there? And so in 1976, he came in and we both bought in and become a minority interest into that dealership together. How I started out, I saw right away, I need to really get involved with the parts and service business and to really take a good look at that. And well, I'll tell you, I, I'm really glad I did that. But I spent that next year, year and a half, just totally focused on the parts and service business. And I remember back in those days, they didn't have computers as these old Vizzy record card system. Every part number had a card and you'd track down that sale. You'd make a, at the end of the day, you'd go through all the cards and write down your sales and who bought them. And if you were out, it meant that where you had your order point and order quantity, you'd set that card out. And then you had your weekly or biweekly stock orders, you'd order that part. And it was just really good to get right down the basics of really understanding not only the legacy equipment and what really needed the parts, but that interaction with the other parts people, with the customers, but the service techs to really get to know the service tech and the work orders and to be able to solve those problems and really understood what the technicians, what drove them, what they liked about their job, how their job can make better. They had a lot of really good ideas about, hey, you should really be stocking this or we should have more of this and really listen to those guys. And to this day, I think that year and a half year that I spent, you know, really focused on, on driving that parts and service business, getting to know that business and really trying to fix the processes and get that nailed down. I think today I still go back to some of the stuff and some of the stuff
stuff I learned from that. Well, that brings us in the 1977, in case you really wanted a store west of us. There was, a, like I said, I drove between Kintyre, North Dakota, and Wapton, wide open spaces. And there was a big open point in Lisbon, North Dakota. So myself and Daryl Larson and two older partners decided that, hey, we'll go build a building there together. And I was going to move out there and start that dealership. So I still remember in April of 1977, we're out there. And I think it was the hottest day of the summer. And I was pushing this cable plow with the electric wires. And the guy that was with me, he couldn't do it, the older electrician. So I'm pushing this thing through to put that electric cable for the heat in the floor. You put that that heats up and heats your floor. And that's the, one of the sources of heat we had in that building. I still remember that. As we put that building together and set up the parts bins and got the initial parts stocks on that ordered. And I hired one partsman and one mechanic is how we kind of got started. And I did all the selling and I delivered the tractors at night and did the work orders and helped with the parts. And really that's how we got started in 1977 in Lisbon, North Dakota. I think we opened up in like September 1st and things kicked off pretty good. I mean, and we started having really good success fairly early selling tractors and selling everything. And I was in Lisbon and Daryl Larson was in Wapiton and it grew the business rather quickly. So I remember in 1980, we approached the former owners and I, and what we could see right now is how we were really growing the business in both locations and especially in Lisbon that we were just raising the price of what this company is eventually going to cost us when we ended up buying it. We were making a lot of money for the current shareholders and they were the majority owners, we were the minority owners. So we went to them and, and said, hey, this is really time that we probably need to buy 100% of the company. So in, in 1980, we formed actually the C-Corp that's Titan Machinery today. In 1980, and bought off the existing owners of the business. And I was in Lisbon and Daryl was in Wapa and really started down that road. I'd say we were probably somewhat leveraged, but understood the business. We had good momentum. Things were going in right in our direction. And unknowingly what was going to be happening in the next 10 years during the 80s. And I'd say the 80s were tough. Hey, we were probably in a 10-year prolonged drought. We had interest rates up 18, 19, 20%, probably lost third to a half of the farmers, probably 60% of the farm equipment dealers. So yeah, it was a pretty tough time. Fortunately, we were really careful, didn't have receivables we had to manage well. I think we were sitting in, in some areas of pretty prosperous farmers and good farmers. And I think they had probably some reserve in a way that they could get through some of this stuff. And boy, it just took a lot of hard work. It was day by day, month by month, week by by week, you just got up, did what you had to do to take care of the customers, grow the business and try to get through that time and difficulties. And, and I remember some dealers that went out of business that really pulled their horns in and really got really ultra conservative, didn't sell much and got in some trouble as their used got devalued and it just didn't work out where I think we try to say, let's sell our way through this stuff, let's sell more stuff, turn our inventory, turn our use, keep pushing through this thing. And it got through the 80s. And that brings us to 1985 when Case and IH merged. And at that time, we were the case dealer in Lisbon. We had New Holland and we worked for tillage equipment. So it worked pretty well. And we were a real large volume with all three companies. We were one of the top New Holland dealers at that time in the Twin Seas branch. We were one of the largest case tractor dealers. And also, I believe we may have been one of the largest Woolrich dealers in the world at that time with the tillage equipment. So when the Case IH merger came along, it was kind of interesting that I got the Case IH contract and Lisbon was awarded that. And Wapiton were really at a, a really old mature 
you're a large, well-capitalized international harvester dealer, we didn't get the contract there. So Daryl and I made the decision to split up our partnership and he had the New Holland contract and he became the New Holland dealer in Wapaden and I became the Case IH and New Holland dealer in Lisbon. And we were friends and it was an amicable split, but we just thought from a simplicity standpoint, we were both starting to start families and I had visions of growing the business. And I think Daryl maybe was a little bit more conservative and say, hey, I'm satisfied with this Wapaden location. So I think it made a lot of sense. But with that, then we made that split. And as we got through the end of the 80s, then all of a sudden I had some opportunities to buy some of my neighboring dealerships. And I believe it was 1989, I acquired the Case IH dealership in Lemoore, North Dakota. And not too much long after that was the Case IH dealership in Ledgerwood, North Dakota. I was really so starting down to be an early consolidator of equipment dealerships. And that went pretty well. Managing those three locations and had the salespeople all reported to me at that time. We had parts and service managers each of the locations and we were looking at the organization. And I think Ledgerwood was about 50 miles away and Lamore was probably 35 miles away. Pretty good farming areas right where we were at. Good diversified, I think, pretty good farmers. But we were aggressive, grew the business and really became one of the largest Case IH dealers, also a large New Holland dealer. And if you look back at that in 1986, Case IH bought Steiger out, right? So now I've got former Case Rigid Flame four-wheel drive. Now we have the Steiger, which was probably considered the four-wheel drive. The best farmers and the wealthiest farmers. And it was a big, heavy, very strong tractor, had Steiger tractor. So all of a sudden I've got that. And then a year later, New Holland bought Ford. Well, New Holland bought Ford about 1986 too, I believe. And then right after that, they bought Versatile. So I'm sitting with the Case four-wheel drive tractor, which I had a pretty good population out. Then the Steigers, which was really a good tractor. Then also the Versatile. So I have the top three four-wheel drive brands all under one roof in one short period of time. So with that, I had to really expanded, especially with my technicians, parts department, parts for all these tractors, and really grew the business as these OEMs were starting to consolidate. Brings us into the 90s then, and things started to turn around a little bit. Farmers started to make some money, their balance sheets started to improve. And there again, I was just extremely aggressive. I was on the Case IH dealer advisory board, ordered in pretty aggressive on the ordering machine. We had long terms at that time. Remember tractors, we had on two-wheel drive tractors, we had 12-month terms. Combines or four-wheel drive tractors had seasonal terms. So if you sold half your inventory in the first year, you get one more year. So essentially we had two years of interest-free terms on four-wheel drives and combines and 12-month terms on tractors. So use that to my advantage. And like I say, sold a lot of machine. We had a lot of market share. Then in the 90s, proceeded to expand out to Coleman, Wishick, North Dakota, then the Jamestown, North Dakota. So during that time, I really focused on generating cash, paying down debt. I paid taxes, built up my retained earnings and really put my, I guess it would be a six-store company in really good financial shape. We'll go back to the Titan machinery story in a minute, but first I wanted to say thanks to HBS Systems, the sponsor of this series. To learn more about HBS's equipment dealership management systems, visit www.hbssystems.com. After that, head over to farm-equipment.com for the latest industry news. Now back to the story of Titan Machinery with David talking about how he teamed up with Tony and Peter Christensen and how that partnership led to the dealership we all know today.
That brings us to that 2000 time frame when I was actually approached by Tony Christensen, the Christensen family, who were the original Steiger dealers in basically the world. Set up in Elbow Lake, Minnesota, did a really good job. If you look at the Red River Valley, the Eastern Red River Valley, and that area around where the Elbow Lake store where the Christensen's had, just a lot of Steigers, and they were doing business with some of the biggest and best farmers in that market. You know, approached me and Tony said, we think we're on the front end of a major consolidation in the farm equipment business. Obviously, you've had some experience with this and you'd be pivotal in being part of that. And would you be interested in teaming up with me? And he was an investment banker with a company called Cherry Tree and really turned what you've got into a serious company. So met with him, thought about that, <laughs> kind of interesting. And I remember in one of my first meetings with him, he said, don't think so much about what the percentage of the company you own is. Think about what the percentage you have and what it could be worth. And talking about the earnings multiple and some of the things you get as different types of, even at that time, I think we even potentially talked about what could a public company look like. So at the time I was looking at, this would have been the International Harvester dealership in Wapiton, the one that ended up getting the Case International contract, that dealership in one in Watertown, South Dakota, that Chuck Pollard, the dealer principal, got killed in a kind of a tragic semi-truck accident. So I was looking at both those locations and I said to Tony, I said, well, maybe get him known better. We a company called Titan Machinery LLC, and we bought those two dealerships together, Wapiton and Watertown. And really, for first of all, I want to get to know him a little bit better. But what he did in my conversation with him from an investment banking background and just a really a visionary, very, really smart guy that I was listening and I was hearing things I didn't in my small little world in the equipment business and the parts and the service, what I knew really well, but I did not have near the exposure to the big world of when you start getting that three, four, five hundred million dollar companies. And he had that. And he could bring that to the table. So we started with those two dealerships really well. And the next step was his brother, Peter Christensen, had the stores in Castleton and Fargo, North Dakota. Then again, Peter, very smart, very good operator, very successful businesses. We put those in with these stores. And actually my business at the time, we called it Meyer Equipment. We got paid a management fee and we had this separate LLC. So We've got those four stores, and then I had the six stores that I had in my original Meyer Equipment business, and along with those four stores, and we got all our heads together, Peter, Tony, myself, and decided to take the big leap to merge these all together. And at the same time, we acquired the Case Construction stores in Fargo and Bismarck. At that time, they were named Kreider Equipment, and then the New Holland dealership in Fargo, owned by Dwayne Mastel. So we started in, in that 2-2003 time frame with 13 locations, and really went down this road to be a public company. At the time, I was living down in Lisbon, North Dakota, and I tried commuting for a little bit, but that was getting pretty hard to do. So in 2004, I moved up to Fargo. We had a little office that we, where there's about probably, oh, what do we have, about four of us working in that. We call our shared resource office, Peter, myself, some accounting people, inventory people, HR. It was a small office. At that time, when we went down this road, we needed two things. We needed an expanded management team, capital, and some growth. So I think during that period of time, I got after the acquisition front and we made some really nice acquisitions contiguous to some of our core footprint in the Red River Valley. Some locations, some nice locations, went into Minnesota, went into South Dakota, expanded in North Dakota, most around that River Valley. So I ended up with a nice contiguous footprint. Then at the same time as we needed to raise capital to support this growth, we did a series of A preferred stock, then a series B preferred stock. Then we did kind of a mezzanine price in this piece and, and we put together a board of directors 
sectors that will really be capable of what a serious company or a public company could potentially have. And we started to do financial reporting internally, like we could have been a public company and really went down this path that not only did we have really some top line growth, but our bottom line growth, we tried to improve our margins, improve our bottom line profitability at the same time we were doing these acquisitions. We're working on our operating model, which I think worked really well at that time with a strong store manager model. And we integrated the stores really well. Just a lot of really good things happening, not only on the bottom line, but the top line. 2006, that was probably the big leap. We were the farm equipment magazine, the dealership of the year that we're here. So appreciate the recognition. But I think that probably summarized a lot of the growth we were having at that time. And the markets where we get into, we got into Iowa by that time too. So if you look at not yet Nebraska, but so we've been Iowa, North South Dakota, Minnesota. We ended up, I'd say, in towards the end of 2006, the first part of 2007, we were on that track to do right around that $300 million in revenue. Today, that probably doesn't sound like maybe a lot, but at that time, that was enough revenue to really justify being a public company. We spent a little bit of time before that just exploring, hey, what would a private equity look like? Would there be an interest in private equity and really have some private equity folks come in and look at our business and evaluate it and some really smart guys. And I think when we talk to our board of directors, stuff like this, I marry up with a private equity firm where we were basically selling our business. And I think both me and Peter, we want to continue to be involved. We want to be driving the business. We want to be an equitable part of it. So that thought of being a public company, as long as you're doing a decent job, can kind of pretty much keep your management team in place. It's up to the board of directors, but I think as opposed to maybe potentially what can happen with that private equity. So we took that leap of faith in December of 2007, took our company public, had to learn all about, hey, what is this two-week roadshow like? Learned a lot about the investors, things that you could say, things that you couldn't say. There's just that whole thing around SOX controls, all the stuff that kind of goes with that public company that we had learned pretty quickly. Again, with Tony Christensen on our board, there's some other people on our board that had public company experience. I think we had a really, really good board. And from our investment bankers that actually took us public, it would be at that time, it was Craig Hallam and Baird. You know, they got very good. One was a Minneapolis-based company, one was a Chicago-based company. But we learned a lot. We listened to them because Peter and I, we knew how to sell tractors and combines and parts and service. But this was pretty much a new venture for us. So in public, I remember the stock price was eight and a half. We know Peter and I both thought, boy, it was a five times book. That means we had five times as many people that wanted to buy our stock than what we had offering out there. So an investment banker says, yeah, just don't get greedy. I mean, people are all going to want to make some money. You're a brand new company. They don't know a lot about you. You're pretty thinly traded. So we went out there, but right away, the stock went up pretty fast. So then not too much longer after we did a follow-on offering than another one after that. Well, I think the first follow-on offering was about right around that $18 mark and then another one and it got up closer to that $30 mark. So that first year was kind of interesting. There's an investor business Business Daily that has the top 100 stock pick that they have out there, the IBD. We were on the, the IBD 100 list a number of times. I know we were number one at times. I know we were number three, number six, some things like that. So that was kind of interesting. So that was some good hype that goes with that. In 2009, we were fortunate enough that Ernst & Young has the Entrepreneur of the Year Award and we got invited. They have different groups of business from the distribution business. I went to the finals and won that division in Milwaukee and got invited to the national finals in Palm Springs and met a lot of really neat people in that, but the Titan Machine, we were one of the finalists in the national, or I guess it's a worldwide organization, Entrepreneur of the Year Award, and actually received the award of, we were one of the top performing IPOs. We got the Venture Capital Award at Palm Springs show in, in 2009. Just a great experience and just a big tribute to our team and, and our people and our employees and the people back at the dealerships and what they did.
did to get us to that point. In 2011, towards late 2011, early 2012, we made our first step to go international. So right now, domestically, we were predominantly agriculture, but like I said, we did have some construction equipment stores that we bought back in 2003, the Kreider equipment stores. And then we expanded our construction business in the Iowa, Montana. We were starting to grow that construction from a business in 2011, 2012, 2013, I think everywhere. Big boom, like I talked about earlier in 1975, big boom in agriculture during that period of time. $7 corn, $15 soybeans. And we got to be pretty good friends with some people that are doing business in Ukraine. And I know they were buying some used equipment from us. They were buying some new equipment that we were selling here in the United States that they didn't know if they quite understood it, but we were trying to teach them some of the short lines, some of the tillage equipment, some of the branding equipment that worked well for us in the United States. We helped them introduce some of that stuff to Ukraine. So we got the chance to see that, and this was a lot of Peter really had a passion for this, and he spent a lot of time over there looking at that. And we just thought that as you saw this huge global demand for food and fiber, and you looked at these developing the former CIS countries where they have actually farming practices really similar to what we see in our markets, really good soil. In Ukraine with the Trinism soil, that's that black dirt, and they've got some of the highest concentrations of that in the world, but really looked at some opportunities. And I know Case IH was looking at expanding their brand. So we went to Romania in 2012, soon expanded into Bulgaria and Serbia, then had an opportunity to go into an oblast in Ukraine. And an oblast is about probably half the size of one of our normal average states in the United States. So one facility in this whole oblast, so it's like I said, a huge territory and some of the best farmland in the world in some developing countries, as you see in this increased demand for food or fiber in the world. And so we thought as a diversified growth strategy, we really made a decision to expand in Europe. So now we have 33 locations in Germany, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, and the Ukraine. So that's kind of how we got there. So like I said, we did two follow offerings on the equity side of the business after IPO, basically get more stock out there, more stock traded to bring more capital into our business. That was good. But one of our board members said, as a public company, it looks like you guys are doing a really good job on the equity markets, but it's really good to have some experience on the debt side of the business. So in 2012, I believe we went into a convertible debenture, a big bond deal with Bank of America to get some experience on the debt side of the business and also give us some dry powder for future experience. Expansions. In that 2012-2013 timeframe, we hit that 2.2 billion mark. And if we look at from that period of time since we went public in 2007, when we were about a $300 million company to that 2.2 billion, which was pretty exciting top line growth. About half of that growth came from acquisitions, but the other half came from organic same store sales. So again, again the increase the revenues at those stores, grow shares, some things like that, improve those dealerships was pretty good. So now put the clock forward. Now all of a sudden we've been in this five year six year four year down cycle depressed commodity prices these overstocks and I think during that period of time pretty challenging but we wanted to right size our business our expenses our organization really to be profitable in this level of commodities industry sales like I say I think a lot of the people in the industry see that combines four wheel drives 100 horsepower plus some of the industry numbers 50% of what they were back in 2012 2013 or even some greater than that so whether that storm and feel good the team really put their heads together made some tough decisions, but relentless on the expense side. But really, I think right now, I'll put our balance sheet in great shape. We paid off that convertible debenture I talked to you about a little bit, but really position ourselves now that we're seeing some slight uptick in what's happening, but really it put us in a great position to go ahead. So I guess in a nutshell, you know, I tried to touch most of the high points of how I started and what we went through and how we got to where the other day, but definitely quite the ride and pretty exciting and still a lot to do out there. And I think
think there's still a lot of opportunities in this business, but definitely interesting for me anyways, as, as we went through this one store location with three employees to one of the larger dealer groups in the world right now. So a lot of fun. I've met a lot of interesting people, a lot of good people. And like I say, we have a lot of good people that are really owe a lot of things too for getting us to where we are right now. You mentioned you were one of the early consolidators in the industry. So you didn't have a lot of examples to follow in getting from becoming a small store to becoming a large dealership. What were your biggest challenges to make that transformation? I think it takes some um, good processes and good systems, I think, in place to do that. And the first thing is it really takes really good people. And I think I was fortunate that we had some really good people. But I think the challenges are you can't do everything yourself, right? So you have to try to pass on what you learn and your experiences and you try to keep an eye on things. But you can't keep an eye on everything. A salesman that's making a lot of bad deals that can hurt you in a hurry if you put too much money in some of the used, some things like that. So you want to make sure that you're trying to stay in touch. But at the same time, there is only so many hours in a day and there's only so much time. So I'll try to keep a pulse on the business, but at the same time, trying to empower your people and getting them to go out and make the right decisions and trying to do what was right and without getting in trouble. So it's kind of that oversight, but at the same time. So I think early on, I think that's a little bit of a challenge. When you're doing everything in the dealership, you're doing all the selling and you've got a pulse on everything that's coming and going. You're opening up the door in the morning and you're closing it at night and you're talking to all the customers that come in and you see what's working, what's not working. But all of a sudden, as you get more locations, out there, you can only be in one spot, right? So you're really relying on the good people. And I was fortunate that I had good people and I was working out and they were able to do the right things. But I can say that is the biggest challenge is how do you have the checks and balances and the controls in place when you're not physically there running a dealership? So in your mind, what is the biggest changes that have taken place during all the years you've been in the business? What are the biggest changes that have really transformed this industry? Well, I think some of the dealer business systems, like I said, when I first started, there weren't any business systems. I think when the dealer business systems came into place, you first went on them and all of a sudden from managing parts inventories, managing whole good inventories, the accounting, all your point of sale, your receivables. And I mean, that really created a lot of efficiencies and stuff. So that all happened probably early to mid eighties that dealerships all went from probably all a lot of manual systems to computers. So that was the first one that probably came about. I think another big transformation is just the horsepower and the pure size of the equipment. I remember when a 300 or 320 horse tractor was about, granted, he had the big buds and some of these really big, but for the most part, a 300, 320 horse four-wheel drive was a big tractor for a long, long time. Even going into the probably early 90s or the late 90s, it was a big tractor and all. It's 620, 650 horse, the size of your combines and horsepower. And so the pure size of equipment, the improvements in hydraulics, the improvements in some of the electric things, I think that was a big wave. And then I guess you take us into the early 2000s, then all of a sudden it's your precision, your GPS, it's your data. That's the next big wave. So probably the three waves that I've seen that I think are probably making a huge difference to our customers and to our businesses. And I don't think we're done yet. But anyways, I remember even going back to middle 70s, well, that's when the air conditioning was in factory cabs, that was a big deal. Then there was hydraulics and then the horsepower. But I think what you're seeing in the dealerships was a lot of really good dealer business systems got put there now it's all your e-commerce and everything you're doing and how you communicate to your customer, the telematics and the data. And I think that's the latest and current wave of going on there right now. 
Dave, if a younger person got in touch with you today and asked your advice about acquiring a dealership, they're thinking about it, either buying into a dealership, acquiring a dealership, what advice would you give them? And looking back, would you do this all over again? Yeah, I think I'd do it all over again. I mean, you're a farmer, rancher, your customer, you're a salt of the earth for the most part, very trustworthy, their words gold, they, they're hard workers, they get stuff figured out, practical, a lot of common sense, and to be able to do business with them, day in and day out. It's fun. I mean, it's just linear around farming and agriculture and we're feeding the world. So from that standpoint, I think there are opportunities and it is fun and it's enjoyable and it's very rewarding to be in that business. And it's multidimensional. If you look at in our business, you've got the new and used equipment side of the business and you've got the parts business, which is all on its own. And I've said many times, if you ask a farmer, what's the number one value that a dealer brings to the business? And they're going to say, just have those parts, have that parts. We'll figure out how to get it on or whatever. But if you don't have the parts, you're dead. So to have those parts and then you've got the service side of the business where you've got the technicians and boy, I've got a lot of respect for these technicians and they're sharp and they can get stuff fixed and they're going to go the extra yard to get it fixed and there's technicians that you can send them out and no matter what the problem is, it seems that the good ones, can they get it figured out and they keep the guys going. So there's multiple dimensions in the business and it's just not all one-sided. I think the farmers out there, I think they want you to be successful and they're going to help you out when they can and they appreciate the communities and they appreciate your investment in the communities. And so, yeah, I think it's a good industry. I think it's going to continue to be a good industry. And I think for a young person to get into it right now, I, I think they can be successful. Now, the industry is consolidating out there and there are some bigger players and they've got some scale and they've got some ability. So to try to replicate what I did in my 45 years is going to be a challenge because some of that's been done already, right? And you're going to be competing against some really good operations, not only on the case side, the New Orleans side, but the deer side and the ankle side. There's just some really well run, well-capitalized, real good businesses out there. And many of them are running 10 locations, 15 locations, 20 locations. So for a young guy to get into this and start off with one or two stores, they're going to have their work cut out for them. And I guess I was fortunate to be able to start off before there was a lot of consolidation and work my way into that. So we may not see that that happen again, but there'll be other opportunities. There'll be opportunities associated with, I don't think consolidation's done and you're going to see more consolidation. And some of these young guys and gals are pretty sharp. They're going to figure out how to run these larger dealers and how to run them better. And I just have a lot of faith in some really smart people out there. They'll figure that out. The last question I have for you today is uh, the industry has gone through five or six really tough years. They made it pretty well considering all the things that they've had against them. But looking forward, if you were talking to a cross-section of the industry, including farmers, manufacturers, and dealers, what encouraging words would you give them today to look forward to? How would you encourage them? I think the first thing is the industry at these low industry levels, which are significantly less than what we saw back in 2011, 2012, 2013. But also, if you look over a 15 year or whatever, we've got pretty low industry numbers right now. And the equipment's getting hours on it. So farmers need that, the reliability of that equipment. They want to make sure they're keeping their main tractors or their planter tractor, their four wheel drives or combines. They need those things working and they can't have them broke down right in the middle of the peak seasons. 
planting season and harvest season. So I think this replacement demand is real. I would say that it's going to continue. And adding to that then is a technology piece. So not only is the fleets getting older and they're getting more hours on them, but also the technology is such that there's actually a return on some of this technology out there. So also with this higher level of sophistication, it's going to take more repair work. It's going to take good techs. So from that standpoint, well, I would say if I was talking to an industry group to say replacement demand for real, I think the technology out there with telematics, the data, the precision, the GPS, that's going to continue. But I think most important is getting down to the basic is the customer care. It's how you support your, your customer with your parts, with your service, and the increased demands is going to be on this sophisticated equipment with that. So I think it's still about blocking and tackling and how you run your businesses. E-commerce is going to be another dimension that's going to come in here and change some things, but we're in a relationship business. Your ability to build those relationships and really execute on your dealership to help your customers become more profitable, to get them through their peak seasons of the year, to help them with the overall values of machinery, not only after they buy it, but when they trade it back in again and buy another new piece. I think that blocking and tackling that helps you do that, it's still not going away. So I think you have to be careful. I think you want to make sure you keep a strong balance sheet, keep your turns up, be careful of your used inventory so it's not hanging around too long. Like you say, it's not too old and you keep turning it. And if you do all those things right and grow cash, I think you're going to continue to see good dealerships out there. But it's going to be interesting to see what's going to be happening long-term. We've got the challenge with ethanol out there, challenge with some of our trading partners. Brazil tends to put in two crops a year, maybe some three crops a year under their belt, huge capacity for production out there. We have to make sure we're driving our demand out there. We know we can produce the crops better than anybody, but we need to make sure that worldwide demand that we are a low-cost producer and a huge exporter and keep those trading channels. And I think growing ethanol and the biodiesel, the, the clean energy out there is extremely important, I think, for our, at least North America and all the growers of the world, really. And I think that to keep supporting ethanol and bio, biofuels, biodiesel also is extremely important. Well, Dave, I want to congratulate you on your success. It's uh, You've got a heck of a track record. Wish you nothing but success in the future. And I want to thank you. It's been a great experience and fun getting to know you, working with you all these years. And thank you for that and appreciate your time today. All right. No, thank you. And thank you to the Lesser Group and Dave, you and you're retiring, I guess. So good luck in your retirement. Thanks so much to David Meyer for taking the time to sit down and share his story with us. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast possible. I'd love to get your feedback on the series, so drop me a line at kschmidt at lessermedia.com. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. This will ensure you're alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Thanks for joining us for this one-on-one conversation with David Meyer. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt, signing out of the Our Dealer Story Podcast.